We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Erica Reamer. Now here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor and the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 449th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday and brought to you today by the ICD University Bookstore. And joining me as my co-host is the extraordinarily popular and highly authoritative Dr. Erica Reamer. And as you know from listening to all these Talk Ten Tuesday broadcasts, Dr. Reamer is number one, the founder, number two, the president, number three, the inoculator in chief of Erica Reamer, MD Incorporated. Good morning, Erica. <laughs> good morning. Thank you. And good morning, everyone. We continue with our exclusive series here on Talk Ten Tuesday called Vaccination Nation. However, thanks to Mother Nature, we had a pivot from our original series from inoculating to participating in the clinical trial. Our special guest had her power and internet knocked out by the ice storms in Texas. She's going to join us next Tuesday, however. And I will happily interview her next week when it is safe. But guess what? I get my second shot tomorrow when I do my vaccinating shift. Wow, I'm very happy for you, Erica. And by the way, I participated in a clinical trial last week. And good news, no side effects, no redness, no swelling. The only side effect is that I certainly consented to an awful lot when I took that one shot. Yeah, it's very interesting. Speaking of clinical trials, later in the broadcast, we'll hear from Carol Lester. Carol is a registered nurse, and she and her husband participated in a vaccine clinical trial in the fall. Everybody's getting a shot. That's good news, but although I understand as a nation, we're very far from herd immunity. Yeah, we have a long way to go, but I am more hopeful than I've been in a while. And we can see how hopeful Lori is when Lori Johnson brings us the Talk 10 Tuesday's coding report. Looking forward to Lori Johnson's report. We have much news to report and begin with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University Bookstore, reminding you that Dr. Erica Reamer's ICD-10 flowcharts provide quick guidance to the correct diagnosis codes for potential COVID-19 cases. Use the ICD-10 Monitor Resources tab at the top of the web room for more information. Here now is Tim Powell. Thanks, Chuck. And the Supreme Court heard oral arguments on November 10th of 2020 regarding whether the elimination of the tax penalty uh, made the remainder of the Affordable Care Act or the ACA invalid under the law. In a tumult of recent events, most people have forgotten that the case was still pending, or they think that the court had already ruled that the ACA is constitutional. Not only is that not the case, the Department of Justice has just filed a new brief, this one supporting the assertion that the ACA can still stand. In November, seems so long ago, doesn't it? Justice Roberts and Kavanaugh signaled that they felt the tax penalty could be severed from the ACA. In the minus column, we certainly have Justice Thomas based on his prior comments and rulings, and we can assume that he will vote to strike down the ACA. Justice Alito, back in November, also broke with the normal decorum and gave what appears to be an extremely political speech, bashing what he called liberals as being a threat to the country. Justice uh, Alito also famously mouthed the word no during President Obama's State of the Union speech. We would count him in the no column as well. We can assume that Justice Sotomayor and Kagan will support the ACA. Justice Breyer will almost certainly support the ACA after looking at past rulings. With Justice Coney Barrett, an unknown and no clear read on Justice Gorsuch, it seems that the court may narrowly allow the ACA to stand. Justice Breyer may soon retire, and I wonder what that confirmation process will look like to replace him. This is all made so much more important by the fact that President Biden is reopening enrollment for the ACA and Congress is debating legislation to expand it. And with that, back to you, Chuck. 
Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim was a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Tuesday. It's February the 16th, 2021. This is the 449th Live Edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Part 1 of this two-part series, you'll learn the basics. Accurate and compliant HCC coding only happens with a strong knowledge of the basics of the Medicare Part C Risk Adjustment Payment Model. So register to attend this important webcast, the first in a two-part series. Learning made easy for risk adjustment and HCC's Part 1, Getting the Basics Right. It's this Thursday, February 18th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register now to attend Learning Made Easy for Risk Adjustment and HCC's Part 1, Getting the Basics Right. Here now with the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report is Laurie Johnson. Good morning, Laurie. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, Erica, and hello to our listeners. February is American Heart Month and Black History Month. When you review the data, you can see that ethnicity does play a role in heart disease. Diabetes increases the risk of heart disease, and the prevalence of diabetes among Medicare beneficiaries is American Indian Alaskan Native at 40%, Black or African American at 38%, Hispanic at 38%, Asian and Pacific Islander 37%, and White at 25%. Hypertension is another common diagnosis worldwide. In the U.S., 45% adults have hypertension, and 75% adults over the age of 60 have that diagnosis. Hypertension is a risk factor for coronary artery disease, stroke, congestive heart failure, and end-stage renal disease. The prevalence of hypertension across race and ethnicity with Medicare beneficiaries is Black African American at 65%, Asian and Pacific Islander at 57%, white at 57%, Hispanic 56%, American Indian Alaskan Native at 54%. CMS Official Minority Health Office, which has the responsibility of improving health of minority populations. This office recommends making the most of healthcare coverage by one, confirming your coverage, Two, know where to go to get answers. Three, find a provider. And four, make an appointment. Five, fill your prescriptions. You can read more about the impact of ethnicity on heart disease in my article published today on ICD-10 Monitor. Since we are celebrating American Health Month, everyone should take advantage of their preventative screenings. And with that, back to you, Erica. Thank you, Lori, and also happy Fat Tuesday. We eat punchkies here in Cleveland for Fat Tuesday. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is Senior Healthcare Consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica and Lori Johnson. Thank you so very much. And you can read Lori Johnson's excellent report in this morning's ICD-10 Monitor. We're continuing our series, Vaccination Nation, and joining us this morning is Carol Lester. Carol's going to share her experience as a participant in a COVID-19 vaccination clinical trial. Here now with her story is Carol Lester. Good morning, Carol. Welcome to Talk to Tuesday. Thank you, Chuck. Good morning, and good morning, listeners. 
I was feeling rather confined and socially distanced due to COVID, as many of us are, and anxious for a vaccine so I could get back to a normal life. I heard about vaccine trials on the national news, so I did some research on the internet about clinical trials, and the closest clinical trial to my home was 70 miles away. My husband was also interested and encouraged me to get some more information, so I called the clinical trial phone number, and they sent us paperwork to complete. We felt enrolling in a clinical trial would help to facilitate the process of making a vaccine available to the public. We knew participants for clinical trials were needed. Frankly, I was hoping to get a vaccine as soon as possible. We began this process in September when the Moderna and the Pfizer trials were in phase three of their clinical trials, and we were both eligible for the trials, and it was determined by the research center in Jacksonville, Florida, that we would be going to, that we would be in the Pfizer trial as, they were, as we were adhering to CDC recommendations for social distancing and wearing masks. We had an initial phone interview and were sent forms by email. We completed a medical form, current medication list, and signed a consent. We had a phone interview where I asked several questions, including what happens if we get a placebo? Can and we actually get the actual vaccine? If the Pfizer trial isn't approved, can we get an approved vaccine when it becomes available? And how long was the clinical trial going to last? We were given information about our commitment, which was two years, and we were accepted into the Pfizer clinical trial. In early October, I drove to Jacksonville, where I met the staff at the Clinical Research Center, and I was interviewed by a staff member, had my vital signs taken, a brief physical by a physician, signed a very lengthy consent form, and had a COVID test, and then I received my first injection. My husband received his a week later. We were both given a kit with a thermometer, a COVID test kit, instructions for an app for a weekly diary, which we needed to complete on a weekly basis, and information in case we happened to develop COVID symptoms, what process we needed to follow. I received my second injection three weeks later and had at least two subsequent appointments for follow-up physical, additional COVID tests, labs, and interviews. My husband had similar visits and one additional visit after he had one vague COVID symptom, which he reported as per the protocol. And what happened was we called the research center and he was instructed to do a COVID test. I was really quite certain that he wasn't positive, but we followed the protocol and the specimen was picked up at our home. When I received two injections, I didn't really have any symptoms, just some mild arm discomfort. While my husband, when he received his, had a few days of dizziness, which was worse after his second injection. This led me to believe that I likely had received placebo and that he had received the actual vaccine. But the study was blinded and we couldn't verify this information. The staff had told us that we might be a priority if, if we received placebo to receive the vaccine when I inquired, but we didn't have this in writing and it wasn't confirmed. When the vaccine was approved for emergency use and nurses were able to be vaccinated in Georgia where I live, I called the research center to inquire if I received vaccine or placebo. The placebo was available where I worked and I was anxious to receive this information as to whether I'd received placebo or not. After about two weeks and several phone calls, my case was unblinded and it was determined that I had indeed received placebo, not the vaccine and I was given an appointment to receive the vaccine on December the 22nd. It was really a great Christmas present. My husband was blinded until his next appointment, but that later changed. We later learned that he did get the Pfizer vaccine in October. 
Most of our follow-up at this point will be via phone for the next two years, and we continue to complete our daily diaries. We've spoken to friends, and some are really interested in our experience and appreciative of our efforts, and others joke that we probably were being guinea pigs, but we feel that we're only trying to do our part to facilitate the process of making the vaccine available to the public. That's my story. Back to you, Erica. That was so interesting, Carol. So I have a, a couple of questions. Um, you said that you had, uh, had like, looked up... You, you had, had um, taken the initiative to find a clinical trial on the Internet. And what kind of criteria were they... Were, did they give you a lot of criteria? Did they just basically say, if you're over this age and interested in getting vaccinated, call this number? That was really the initial process. I don't recall the criteria on age from the high end, from an elderly perspective, and they weren't taking young children. I believe it was below 16. But um, we did have some initial conversation on the phone when I called the trial information, and then we had an an additional interview um, to see if we were eligible for the vaccine before they sent us any paperwork. And and it's interesting that, the, I mean, there are still trials that are going on because, like, Chuck just participated in one as well. So if anybody is interested in doing this, I guess they could still do it. Um, I did your, think so. Yeah, did your husband have to be convinced, or was he interested in doing this from the, the beginning? No, I was actually quite surprised. I've been a nurse for a number of decades, and when I mentioned it to him, he said, call, I'm interested too. So huh. it, it was it was a team effort. I, I think it's really I think it's really interesting, and I I think it's it's very brave to do it because it it is kind of scary to to participate in a trial, especially you don't know if you're getting placebo or you're getting the the real medication. You don't know if the medication is going to be effective or not. I, I I really I admire you for doing it. Um, you you are a CETUS. So at the time that this, this was happening, it seems like um, from what you had said, they they checked to see how strictly you were following sort of the COVID rules. So at the time that you were included in the study, were you working remotely or were you, you know, going to the hospital at that time? Did that like enter into it at all? I'm not sure if it entered into it or not. I think it was more of our social personal but I was working fully remote um, due to COVID. Prior to that, I was hybrid. And, and are you still, so, so you were hybrid prior to it. Are you still working remotely? Yes, I'm still working fully remote. Yeah, okay. Um, and you did tell me that in order to participate in this drug trial, you had to drive 70 miles from your home. How often did you actually have to do this? I believe I had gone down to Jacksonville about four times. Um, the initial with the, when I had received the vaccine, we had gone down for additional blood work. Um, I, of course, um, I went down one other time prior to that. And, of course, I went down when I received the actual vaccine due to having received placebo the first time around in December. That is real dedication and motivation. I really commend you for it. And then I guess the last um, question I have is, it sounds like it wasn't that easy to get them to unblind you and, and then did you get the vaccine in your hospital or did they give it to you? Like, and how did that work out? I'm, I actually had gotten the vaccine from the clinical trial when I received it in December. I'm sure that they want to keep as many people in the vaccine trial as possible. I believe I would have been out of the vaccine trial had I received the vaccine locally at my hospital. 
Well, Carol, that was really fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing your story. That was Carol Lester. Carol is a clinical documentation integrity specialist at a regional hospital in Georgia. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, for those very good questions. And again, Carol, thanks so very much for being on our program this morning. And you can read Carol Lester's personal experience as a clinical trial participant in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor. You're listening to Talk 10 Tuesdays. This is the broadcast service of ICD-10 Monitor. We'll be right back. These are five of the most common risk-adjusting medical conditions. Altered mental status, type 2 myocardial infarction, respiratory failure, acute kidney injury, and malnutrition. But accurately diagnosing and documenting these conditions often proves to be highly elusive. During a timely webcast, Dr. Eric Reamer offers a unique opportunity to get everyone, coders, CDI specialists, and providers on the same page. Using case examples to illustrate, Dr. Reamer walks you through the basic pathophysiology and clinical indicators of each condition while dispelling common misconceptions. You'll also learn how to compose clear, compelling physician queries that lead to an accurate depiction of the patient. The webcast, Back to the Basics, Clinical Documentation of Five Common Conditions, is now available on demand. Now is the time for a very popular segment here at Talk 10 to see, and it's called Talk Back, and it features our very own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, it's all yours. Thanks, Chuck. Um, since we're doing Vaccination Nation and uh, we're, we've been focusing on COVID-19, I thought I would um, bring you guys up on some information that I've been seeing and hearing and reading uh, about COVID-19. Uh, first, I'm going to talk about the variants. So we know that they are, they've found some new variants, the um, uh, South African variant and the British variant, and what they're finding is that they, and there's the Brazilian variant as well, and they're finding that these are uh, seem to be more transmissible, so they're more contagious. And the British one, there's actually a question of whether it's more deadly or not. Uh, but what, now that they're increasing genomic sequencing here in the United States, we're finding that those variants are actually here in our, uh, they are prevalent here as well. But we also are finding that we've generated some of our own mutations here in the United States. And what they're finding is kind of interesting is that the areas where these uh, viruses are mutating, there's some commonality, which probably is because it gives some sort of advantage to the virus. So the more circulating virus you have, the more opportunities the virus has to mutate. And some of those mutations just don't work out. They don't, they don't pan out. And some of them make, make the virus either more um, contagious, uh, which, is, which is obviously beneficial to the virus because then it can, you know, propagate itself. So the, the basics is we are now in a race to vaccinate and develop herd immunity against the Darwinian propensity for the virus to evolve. And uh, we will be posting the transcript to my talkback uh, probably sometime in the next couple of weeks. And I will have a bunch of links where you guys can look up some of the information that I'm going to be discussing. Uh, Emily, can you go to the, to the slide on the masks for me? So the CDC has updated its recommendations on mask use. 
And, you know, I think that we all remember, at first we were going, well, you don't really need masks. And then they were like, yeah, it seems like you might probably do need masks. And it seems like it'll protect the person who, not the person who's wearing it, but it'll protect the other person. And now there's um, definite uh, information that says that it protects both. So they've, they're updating the mask recommendations again. And what they're doing is they're actually suggesting that people should be double masking. And one of the, the benefits of doing this double masking is making sure that the mask fits snugly um, against your face so that air is not escaping on the sides. They recommend choosing a mask that has a nose wire and making sure you adjust it to fit your nose. This both helps to keep air from escaping from above, so hopefully it'll keep your glasses from fogging up. But it also hopefully holds the mask in place so it doesn't slip down below your nose, which, you know, for those of you who probably remember something of your anatomy, your nose is connected to your mouth, and if you're not covering up your nose and your mouth, you're not really doing anything. Um, they also suggest that you can use a mask fitter or brace. So this picture that you're looking at uh, right now, if you're, if you're actually looking online, um, this is a, a brace that I actually purchased online. I got it from something called 4Ocean, um, which is like the number four and the word ocean. And what they do is they actually remove trash from the oceans, rivers, and coastlines. And then they, I don't know, melt it down, repurpose it, and do something about um, do something to repurpose it into making the plastic, which creates this um, brace. And it's really kind of cool because what it does is it holds the material away from your mouth, so it's not like getting in your mouth when you're talking. Uh, and they actually, and it also um, helps bring it closer to your face at the top and the bottom. Uh, they also, the CDC also recommends layers of materials, so they suggest that you can either wear a cloth mask that has multiple la layers of fabric, um, and if you look at the picture that I have here, I'm trying to show you that this is uh, a mask I made, and it's got a pocket where I stick a surgical mask, or people sometimes use like vacuum um, filters, and you stick it in there, and that actually gives you extra protection, so you can either use that or what you can do is wear a like a surgical mask um, underneath a cloth ma cloth mask. So the cloth mask should hopefully um, pull it up against your face and keep the the surgical mask close to your face. Uh, and then finally, they uh, suggest that um, you knot and tuck the ear loops uh, of the surgical masks. Then you can actually tuck the material uh, underneath so that it makes it. Um, go uh, adhere closer to your face so that the air can't escape on the sides. Um, and if you check out my, um, once we post this, you'll be able to see that uh, um, there's a, a YouTube link where they show you how to do this. Uh, I'd also like to suggest that people make sure that they throw away their masks in the garbage. It's really disheartening how many masks litter the parking lot at my supermarket. And it's estimated that every month during the pandemic, 200 billion disposable face masks and plastic gloves are being disposed of and impacting the environment. Another thing that I saw uh, online today was you should consider cutting the strings prior to disposing of these um, disposable masks because there have been numerous reports of wild 
life and fowl getting caught in the strings, and domesticated pets are actually swallowing masks, which causes a bowel obstruction. All right, I'm going to switch to vaccine news now. On February 26th, the data review of Johnson & Johnson's single-dose vaccine will be available. The FDA will announce whether it approves the EUA application. Remember, none of these vaccines have been have FDA, FDA approval yet. Um, the Pfizer and the Moderna are under the EUA at this time. And I saw something that I really think is very useful if you um, talk to people who say it seems like they really rushed everything through. The concept was that they were going to eliminate red tape, not that they were skipping steps in um, vetting the safety of these vaccines. So the Uh, Having Johnson & Johnson's single-dose regimen with a vaccine that's stable at normal temperatures will likely be a game-changer, and as I mentioned before, the vaccines are in a race with the variants. There are new recommendations regarding mammograms and COVID-19 vaccination from the Society of Breast Imaging. Um, Some of you may have heard Juliet Ugarte Hopkins uh, on our show um, in the past, and she actually experienced this, that she developed... Uh, axillary lymph node enlargement on the side of the shot after vaccination. And this can can confound the mammogram and cause people to have unnecessary follow-up testing. So women are being advised to get their yearly mammogram before their first dose or four to six weeks after their second dose of vaccine. The CDC has also updated the recommendations regarding COVID-19 exposure in people who are considered fully vaccinated. That is, they've received all the shots in the series and they're two weeks post-final vaccination. These individuals may forego expectant quarantine, assuming they meet all of the criteria of being fully vaccinated, being within three months of receipt of the last dose in the series, and they are asymptomatic since the exposure. And then the final thing I wanted to talk about was the therapeutics. There are new uh, investigational drugs being tested um, through a public-private partnership program to coordinate research and speed development of promising treatments and vaccines, including an inhalable beta interferon, which is delivered by Nebulizer, long-acting monoclonal antibody combination that's being studied as both an infusion and an uh, intramuscular injection, and an orally administered serine protease inhibitor that may block SARS-CoV-2 from entering cells. So um, they're doing um, the studies at this time, and obviously if these become uh, available, if they're approved and become available, we will have Lori Johnson tell you what the codes are to be able to do uh, to document these if they're necessary because they may be done as outpatient, uh, and then obviously there's no PCS for that. So that's a roundup of what's been going on, and back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Erica, very much. Very, very interesting comments. Let's take a look at some of the questions coming in, and uh, then we'll uh, say goodbye. Somebody asked, uh, can you talk about getting COVID after vaccination? So what I would say is, if somebody actually develops the disease Within, so let's say it's the first, you get the first dose, um, and you get the disease like shortly thereafter, you probably already had been exposed and already had contracted COVID-19. And the fact that it occurred shortly after, um, the shot is sort of a coincidence. 
So if you hadn't gotten your vaccine, you still would have gotten COVID-19. Um, there is no way of getting COVID-19 from the vaccines. There is no virus in it. You cannot get it from getting the vaccine. However, if somebody has been vaccinated, so, so if they're, if they're um, well into the time frame after the first dose, or especially after the second dose, within, you know, you are fully vaccinated two weeks after getting your second dose. If you were to get COVID, they have seen no, no instances of people requiring, having severe disease, requiring hospitalization or death. One last question uh, that we're going to be able to get to, and that is we're seeing insurers remove U07.1 from claims when the patient is a positive test on admission, but they're being admitted for an unrelated diagnosis like acute diverticulitis, stating the patient was not treated for COVID-19, so it can't be used. And the question was, is it correct? And uh, we're going to see, Lori, uh, I think that you were volunteering to answer, so go for it. Okay, thank you very much, Erica. And we're seeing insurers do this not only with um, the COVID code, but other diagnosis codes. And the appeal needs to show the documentation. For one, this patient had a test, so they've consumed resources. And then I would show if they were in isolation or any additional precautions that were taken because the patient had COVID, as well as if they were receiving any treatment as well, and that should support the diagnosis. Unfortunately, you can't blame auditors for trying, but we, if you expend resources and you take care of the patients correctly, you should be entitled for the reimbursement. I think that's all that we've got time for. Chuck, back to you. Thanks, Erica. And Lori Johnson, thanks for answering that very important question. We continue next week with our series, Vaccination Nation. We're going to feature dispatches from our various ICD-10 monitor contributors and talk to Tuesday panelists. They're going to provide updates on vaccination rates from their respective states, and we're going to hear a firsthand account of mass vaccination. So that's going to be a wrap for this 449th edition of Talked In Tuesday. I want to thank our panelists today, Lori Johnson. Thank you again. Carol Lester, thanks for being with us. Tim Powell. And a special thanks, as always, to our co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. And one more thing before we go. An unprecedented winter storm is ravaging Texas and stretches across 25 states. It's causing power failures. It's quite disruptive. So our thoughts are with all those who are being impacted this morning, our listeners and our readers. Hang in there as the storm continues. We're very sorry about all of that. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Isaac 10 Monitor and Talk to Tuesday. Thanks for being with us. Be sure to wear your face mask, wash your hands, and practice social distancing, and be sure to get vaccinated. It's very dangerous out there. Thanks for being with us today. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.